Amen. Thanks, man. I'm always impressed by you. I was nothing like you when I was your age. Just picking my nose and going into debt over a stereo system and stuff like that. You're changing the world. <laughs> good morning. It's good to see you. I haven't met a few of you. My name is Luke. I'm one of the pastors here. If you have a Bible, turn to Matthew 6. That's where we're going to find ourselves today. And also, while you're turning there, I'd like to introduce a brand new couple here. It's Christian and Adia Bayless. This is their first Sunday at Legacy as a married couple. I got to marry them a couple weeks ago. Brand new couple. It's good to see you guys. We are starting a new series today, and I get to kick it off, which I like to do, and the series is going to be a little bit different for us as a church, because in two hours, I go on sabbatical. So I'm going to get to be on sabbatical for a couple months, two or three months. We actually discussed this in the last partners meeting. Um, if you were not a part of that partners meeting or you might not even know what a sabbatical is and you want to talk to somebody about it, we have a couple pastors here that would be free and, and available to you to answer any of your questions. Matt, would you raise your hand? Yeah, he'll answer any question you have. And Chase, who is just up on stage, I don't even know if he's in the room yet, he would be able to answer any of your questions as well. Um, but, you know, a sabbatical without getting into the detail of it, is just an amplified Sabbath. Healthy churches extend one to their lead pastor on every seventh year. It's just the best way to show um, a responsible way of taking care of their leaders. This is actually my eighth year after we launched as a church plant, uh, my ninth year to live here in Knoxville. And the pastors are real excited I get to do this. I actually have spoken with many of you, and you've been encouraging as well that I get to do this. So I thank you for that. Thanks for encouraging me and my family. It means a lot to us. Um, it's going to give us time to really rest and recalibrate for hard seasons of leadership ahead. I'm very excited about the future of our church. I'm excited about the future of what God is calling us to do in this city. And as I pray and as I look forward to a lot of the challenges that we have as a church, I realize it's going to require healthy leadership from me as one of the pastors. And so a rest like this, it's actually gonna posture me to serve you better. Besides, and probably most of you don't know this, I wrote a book, comes out in like two or three weeks, um, on, past, on pastoral self-care and resilient leadership in the ministry. <laughs> so I have to put my money where my mouth is. I might need to take a sabbatical when the time comes for it. So please be praying for our family as we do this. Be praying for the very simple thing of rest. It comes very normal to people. It comes very difficult to me to rest. Um, pray that I'm able to do that. Pray that my family's able to do that. Pray for the church. Pray for legacy, okay? Pray for the pastors of this church. We have fantastic pastors. All three of them, not, not me, I'm the fourth. All three, I mean, I would do this too. We would take a bullet for you. We would lay down in front of a train for you. So when they sign a covenant saying that they are here to serve you and love you, they mean that. All right, we have a solid group of experienced pastors here. Our staff is fantastic. I've been doing staff meetings for just over 20 years, and I think this is probably the first time I've found myself in staff meetings where I just, I walk out of there just full. Just, there's so much innovation and creative feedback. I'm very, very excited about what God is doing in our staff. They're going to serve you well. Be praying for your calm group leaders and co-leaders. That's really the motor behind who we are as legacy. It's not this. It's what God is doing in the living rooms and during the week spread out throughout the city. So be praying because summers can be tricky for churches, right? They could be brutal for young churches. I mean, look around. We're like at a third capacity right now, right? People, they travel a bunch. They are more mobile in the summer. It makes it difficult. There's a strain on volunteers. There's just a strain all the way around. So please be praying for legacy this summer. Traditionally, summers have been really good for us as a church. They've been very difficult at the same time as a church. What this also means, me being on sabbatical, means that you're going to see a variety of speakers up here on this stage, um, which I'm really excited about. Um, in fact, we literally handpicked our favorite people to come and preach their very best sermon to you. This was the prompt. This was my sales pitch when I'm talking to all of them. What I want you to bring to Legacy and how I want you to serve the people of Legacy, I want you to imagine that you only have 35 or 40 minutes left to live. That's it, and then you're dead, okay? But you're surrounded by your kids and your grandkids and all those people that you love and they love you, and they beg you to preach your favorite sermon to them out of your favorite passage in the Bible. What is your life message? How are you gonna leave this planet? That's what I want you to bring to Legacy Church, your very, very best, your life's work. 
And they were all excited about it. Anytime you get a pastor and a preacher who's excited about the text that they get to bring and it's a piece of them, man, that's going to be good. I'm excited. I'm actually really jealous. Because this is what you're going to hear this summer. Literally the best sermons from some of our favorite people. Some of them have been preaching as long as I have. Um, A couple of them taught me how to preach. You are actually going to see a couple people up here, two or three people, that are the future of the church. These are people that we believe kind of embody what the new church leader looks like. And and the pulpit's not going to be so um, normal for them. It's going to be kind of new. I'm really excited about them getting to do something like this. Like I said, I'm just jealous. You're going to be in for a treat. It's going to be like a conference every week is what it's going to feel like. So with that out of the way, I'd love to just jump into this text Some passages, you know this, as a Bible reader, if you read the Bible, if you're a student of the Bible, some passages you just read a lot more than others. You highlight, you read a few weeks later or a few months later, and you kind of wished it wasn't highlighted so you can highlight it from scratch. It means that much to you. It's all marked up. Some of them are kind of soaked and stained with tears. The page is all wrinkled. It's not like Deuteronomy 7, which has never seen the light of day in your Bible probably, right? This passage means a lot to you. This is going to be one of those passages for me. So Matthew 6, we're going to be in verse 25. We're going to go all the way to verse 34. This is Jesus preaching, and he is in his Sermon on the Mount, and he says this, Therefore I tell you, Do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet their heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his lifespan? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient the day is its own trouble. Okay, I'm finishing this series, and I'm starting the new one at the same time because the passages overlap. Right. I mean, if I probably have four or five sermons, it would be my life message. <laughs> I don't know if I could just pick one. I think I have four or five. This would be on the list for sure about anxiety. Right. I mean, Jesus is speaking very kindly to you and me on the remedy for anxiety as we find it in the gospel. Not just the gospel that saves us from death, but a gospel that sustains us in this life. He speaks to us kindly. If you struggle with worry or panic or anxiety, if you fret, if you toil, you are in good company today, right? Because I'm in your club, right? I'm ahead of you, I would say. I'm an addict. I'm a stress addict. If you have any flavor of anxiety or worry or stress, I totally understand. I'm an expert in this field. But listen, if you don't, if you don't have anxiety, You don't worry. You don't really have late nights of toiling and worrying. If that's not you, I'm going to be big help for you today as an addict. I would like to talk to you because anxiety rips through everybody, doesn't it? Not just the person wearing the load of an anxious toil, but the person that has to live with them. It's like secondhand smoke. It kind of just rips through everybody. It kills anybody. In fact, our society as a whole, I find it sliding more towards panic and anxiety than it ever has, I think, in history. And I think that gives us reason as a church to be excited about the missional opportunities we have. Not just this church, lowercase c, local church, but just the grand church, capital C. I mean, if we are in the middle of a humanity that is striving and wringing its hands, feeling like mortars are going off all around and it can't have rest and it can't have peace, we happen to hold a gospel where we have a hero in it that speaks to the terrified soul and says, peace, be still. We have this. And aren't 
Aren't we just full of people that always feel like there's mortars going off around us? Terrified even? Panicked? It feels like you're you're living with a gun to your head. Like if you make just a wrong move at any time, everything comes unstitched right in front of your eyes. I think pop culture is actually starting to reveal how common this is now. There's this British band. I'm not big on anything that comes from England typically. Besides their cool accent, this is the only thing I really like out of the whole country. But there is a band called Bastille. It's named after Bastille Day. I don't even know what happened on that day. Apparently it's important. So it's a band that's been getting more and more influential over the last few years, right? But it's been around for a while. They have a song called World Gone Mad, not on their latest album, but on two albums ago. This is the chorus that he sings in a sad tone over and over and over again when it feels like the world's gone mad and there's nothing you can do about it. No, there's nothing you can do about it. And that's it. No answer, no remedy, no happy ending. You're sinking in the waves. No one's stretching an arm out to you. It's just everything's coming apart. Same band, same lyricist, same front man, Dan Smith, has a song that just came out on his last album. It's called Doom Days is the song. He says this, when I watch the world burn, all I think about is you, right? So journalists start picking up that this guy is singing about things coming undone and things being mad and things burning down a lot. And so they interview him over it. And this is what he said. We wanted it, it meaning the very last song. We wanted it to be really direct and talk about trying to find escapism from our modern anxieties, phone addiction, Porn addiction, fake news addiction, climate change denial, to name a few, he says. Turns out there was much to talk about or nothing to talk about, apparently. Because all they're doing is just pinning a tail on it. They're just saying, there's this thing called anxiety. The whole world's going mad. Everything's burning down. And that's just about all they could do is just resonate with you. It's just be, be relevant. I, I remember my first time to hear both these songs, my first two or three times, really, It was easy for my soul to recognize this. Man, it does feel like the world's gone mad. It does feel like there's nothing you can do about it. It does feel like that. But this isn't going to be good enough. Just recognizing it, just saying that it's happening is not going to be good enough. And this is all Western society can do with anxiety. It could speak openly about it. It can relate to you regarding it. It could do all of those things. It could even medicate it, but it cannot stop it. We cannot stop it. We can't freeze it. We can't reverse it. So Jesus brilliantly, gently speaks to a world gone mad in this Sermon on the Mount, one that's burning down around us. He'll actually do more than just speak to it. See, anxiety is suffering. And Christ came to rescue us from suffering. And it is a suffering, isn't it? I mean, if you're anxious in the room... I wouldn't ask you to raise your hand. You'd be nervous and anxious about doing it, right? But if you're anxious in here, you know what it feels like. It feels like you are one wrong move away, doesn't it, from everything coming apart, everything. And all you need to do is think and worry about it and wring your hands. And you might, you might come up with a couple scenarios that will save you. And if those fail, no problem. I've got six or seven backups that will save me if those plans don't save me. And here's the thing about the problem that's threatening to you. It doesn't even exist yet. It's not there. It's it's not even a ghost. It's a ghost of a ghost. It doesn't exist. That's a suffering. And as I said earlier, like secondhand smoke, it's not just the anxious person that's suffering. Living with the anxious person is a suffering all to itself, right? My poor wife, (laughs) my poor wife. The things that keep me up at night are ridiculous, capital R, ridiculous. And she bears with me through it all. Snoring over there, she didn't really snore, she's too pretty to snore. Sleeping soundly over there, she's not losing any sleep. She She lives with me, telling me stuff I should already know, ministering to a heart that's panicked. That's tough for her. It must be tough for some of you to see loved ones and friends go through something that you can't even see. They're freaking out about a a challenge that doesn't even exist. I know it's tough for you. So I, for one, am glad that Jesus does not skip this part of his sermon, right? Of course, we know if we're being honorable with the text, we know that these people, they were stressed out and anxious over very real first basic needs, like food and clothing, more than likely a place to live, 
right? This is what they're struggling over. These are the things that are difficult for them. This isn't something that's really ever going to be difficult for you. You live in a time and you live in an age where you're never going to go without food and you're never going to go without clothing. Come on, seriously. You could have some tough times. You could even have stuff repoed or, or, or whatever. You were still going to have food. You were never going to starve to death. No one in this room's ever starving to death. No one in this room's ever going to have to walk around naked. But you still know what it feels like to be smothered with anxiety, don't you? Oh, yeah. We know. So he speaks to us. He's not just speaking to them. He's speaking to us. And this is what he says. I'm going to go back to verse 25 just for a moment. He says, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Okay, this is... Here's the main idea. You can, you can crush it down into two words. You're valuable. You are valuable. You're valuable. You're valuable. It seems like that should be obvious, but where worry and anxiety find their genesis in is the idea and the conviction that we are not valuable because God doesn't see what's going on. If God saw what was going on, he'd fix it. So we're not considered. We're not thought for. He doesn't see us. He's abandoned us. He's left us. So we don't do that to things that are valuable. We, we don't just abandon things that are valuable or abandon people that are valuable, so we're obviously not that valuable to God. So Jesus starts off not by saying, hey, stop worrying. Just stop worrying. He, he convinces us that we're valuable. And then he goes on and does something real cool in verse 27. And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his lifespan? Man, Christ knows what he's talking about here. This is interesting. Anxiety, and you know this if you struggle with it, it operates under a subtraction model. It never adds, despite its advertising, right? What anxiety would communicate if it was a person, it would say, all you need to do is wring your hands, stay up late at night, fret, toil, and panic over something, and then if you do a good job and you could cook up enough strategies and scenarios, then you can escape the pain of that thing once it slaps you in the face. You can get around it. That's what it convinces you. That's what it says. It lies. It's a lie. It doesn't add life to you. It takes it away. No, nobody ever said, this is something nobody's ever said, man, I'm so glad I was up pacing the floor from 2 a.m. to 7 a.m. That was exciting because just think about all the trouble I would have avoided had that thing happened that didn't end up happening. I mean, think about it. I mean, nobody says that. It's stupid. I can't tell you how many times, and I've lost more sleep than anyone in the room, I promise you. I can't tell you how many times I get to 3 p.m. that next day and think, stupid, that thing never even happened. It happened totally different than I thought it was going to happen. Man, I lost another night of sleep. When we live like there's a gun to our head, we will spend copious amounts of time building strategies to avoid pain, and that does not add to your life. It will not add to your life. It steals from it takes away from it. Here's the thing, and if you're anxious, you know this, and if you're not anxious by nature, then this will be new for you. Anxious people, when we strategize, build scenarios to save ourselves, we don't feel like we're doing something unhealthy. We feel like we're being responsible, don't we? Like, who wouldn't think of something? Who wouldn't think of a way out of pain? We're just being vigilant, we tell ourselves. And here's the thing, the Bible actually kind of calls and draws us towards living as one who is vigilant. It'll use words like sober-minded. It'll use different words. But vigilance is, is something that we are kind of called to walk in as, as a church of disciples. Vigilance is this. It's, it's our ability to look at the landscape of our lives, of the lives around us, and when we see a fire pop up, smoke, fire, danger, we respond, appropriately respond. That's vigilance. Anxiety is not where we respond to danger, but where we react when there is none. The fire's not even there. We're not responding appropriately. We are reacting in a toxic manner. Anxiety is toxic vigilance where it's turned in upon itself. Some of you, you see fires everywhere. Everywhere. Your vigilance is broken. It's toxic, so you just live in fight or flight, which is why it's hard for you to let down. It's hard for you to take a deep breath. It's hard for you to fall asleep 
he goes on. He goes on in verse 28. I find this to be important. And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. Okay, curious verse there. Gentiles seek after these things. This will be a reminder for most of you. A Gentile is just someone who's far from God. Someone who might not even call God God. Someone who does not love Jesus. Someone who does not have a passion in them for the Lord. This, this is a Gentile. Someone who is not a Jew in, this, in our regard right here in this sermon. And whenever they live a life where it looks like the world is coming Apart, The world has gone mad, and they do not have a close covenant relationship with God. That means they're all alone. And if no one is looking for number one, they've got to look out for themselves. And when I worry, and when I anxiously toil, and when I find myself in the throes of panic, I'm acting like a Gentile. I'm acting like someone who's not covenantally tied to God. I'm acting like someone who's not considered. Someone who, who it's almost an atheistic behavior. So what am I stuck with? I'm stuck with the same remedies that the world chases. Anything that will make me safe. And that requires anxiety to think about those things. To not trust that the Lord is actively working. And listen, the church can be just as bad at this, right? The church, we decide we can be just as bad. We can beg God to take our anxieties and our stresses away. And we fail to see the beauty of him close to us when we're in the middle of them, Right? Or we'll try to sanitize ourselves from anything that brings stress, which, let's be honest, it's typically people, right? So we try to isolate ourselves from people. We try to get away from people because they just bring anxiety to us. But you can't do that as a disciple. We're in the people business. The gospel is, is a people endeavor, born of God. So we can't do that. Or maybe we'll just choose. We will decide, I'm not going to be stressed out right now. In the name of Jesus, I will not be panicked. I declare it, which doesn't work, does it? Because your soul isn't a trained animal that you just demand things to, which is why it doesn't help you if you're stressed out when people just tell you to stop worrying. It doesn't help. It makes it, it inflames it oftentimes, right? By the way, if you are someone who does not struggle with anxiety, yet you live with somebody who does, this is why you've noticed they don't respond well to you trying to convince them that a problem is not a problem. <laughs> You've already figured that out, haven't you? To say things like, hey, it's not that bad, or here's my favorite, look at the bright side. Or what are the chances that could really happen? Listen, this is what an anxious person hears whenever they hear that. What are the chances? Well, all it takes is a 1% chance. If there's a 1% chance, I'm anxiously in panic and I'm fretting and I'm toiling and I'm wringing my hands, right? Can't say those things. Can't say things like, that's not realistic. There's no way that's gonna happen. They're not hearing it. Trying to convince a nervous person, an anxious person, that a danger is not really a danger, that's just a lost cause. Because by the time you finish your sentence on how something's not a problem, they've already considered two more new things to replace that problem. That's just a look under the hood. That's what it looks like. Here's the thing, and this is where I've been trying to drive to. There is no refuge for the nervous person there is no refuge in the problem disappearing. None. The only refuge you will find as an anxious person is when you are close, when you are close to the one who gets rid of problems, the one who speaks peace be still to problems. Let me explain what I mean by that. Psalm 46. I'm going to turn there. We'll have it up on the screen. I think I'm going to turn there. There it is. Psalm 46. And I'm just going to read a couple pieces. I'm not reading the whole thing. You can on your own. It's a fantastic psalm. I'm going to read verses 1 through 3, and I think 9 and 10 probably. But this is what the psalmist says. He says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. 
Verse 9. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He, broke, he breaks the, the bow and shatters the spear and burns the chariot with fire. And then he says this, be still and know that I am God. This is the picture of this psalm. Creation is ripping apart. It's doing stuff the creation doesn't do. And it's happening. And it's panic if there ever was panic to see the cosmos behave this way. And God says, I am God, peace, be still. I'm here. I'm here. I'm here. What I love about this passage, this psalm, is Jesus, many moons later, actually reaches back into Psalm 46 and remixes it. He remixes and repurposes Psalm 46 because now he's in a boat with disciples. And it's at night, and it's stormy, and this open boat, by the way, is taking on water in the middle of a large body of water itself, right? Let me tell you, I'm a really good swimmer, and if you are in choppy water as a really good swimmer, you can get to panic really fast. Experienced swimmers can find themselves panicked really fast. When the water gets choppy, I want you to imagine there being no light, and it's storming, and the waves are taking on. This is life or death. It's not like they're, just, they're getting their sandals wet, and they're really upset about it. It's like they're about to die. This is a, a dire moment. And where's Jesus? He's sleeping. <laughs> He's sleeping. He's in REM cycle number two, right at the boat, not a care in the world. It says, but he was in the stern in Mark 4.38. Asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Pause. Is that not an anxious person? Is that not what an anxious person says? Don't you care that I'm going through this? Don't you care that my job doesn't pay enough? Don't you care that my marriage is coming apart? Don't you care that I'm sick all the time? Don't you care? Don't you care? You don't see. You don't care. I'm not valuable. This is the voice of an anxious person right here. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, what? From Psalm 46, peace be still. Peace be still. Peace doesn't come when a problem is solved. Peace comes when the problem solver is close. If you're anxious, you need to hear that. Peace does not come when the problem vanishes, but when the problem solver is right there. These apostles were not safe because the storm just stopped. They were safe because Christ, the risen king, is right there with them. He's with them. The one who stills storms. Only God can speak to a world gone mad. And he wouldn't just speak to it in a sermon like this. He would still the biggest storm that we have in our lives by approaching the cross, by tackling that cross. But in this moment, and in this sermon, he ministers to the terrified heart. And how does he do this? By convincing us that we're valuable. There's a lot there. There's a lot there that we're valuable. This is, this is the very source code of the gospel. Okay, the very source here it sets the table for what we see as the gospel. You are valuable, but not because you're impressive. <laughs> we're not valuable because we're impressive people. We're not valuable because we're moral. We're not valuable because we're Americans or because we're conservatives. We're not valuable because we believe a certain. We're valuable because God bestows value upon us. He ascribes value to us, so we are valuable. How do we know, Luke? How do you know that? because he came to rescue what was valuable for him. And he did so at his own great cost, out of a deep passion. He did so for his glory. He did so for our good. And when he does this magnanimous rescue attempt for those who are valuable to him, in that he shows how glorious he is. He's glorious. Now these aren't things that we just roll out of bed and tell ourselves and remind ourselves of, are they? No way, man. I mean, when my feet hit the floor, my factory setting is, God, you don't care. I'm just being honest. I don't say it out loud. It's in the back of the head. Maybe God doesn't see this. You don't care. Or if you do, you probably care about other people's stuff a lot more than you care about my stuff. And I'll tell you, if you believe that, even a little bit, it's going to leave you feeling alone. Cosmically alone. And this is what alone people have to do. They have to fight for number one because no one else is looking out for them. They got to look out for number one. This is what Ray Ortland said. 
in his book, The Gospel. Listen, if you don't own this book, you could read it in two afternoons. It's like a little tiny green book. Everyone should have it on their shelf. You should read it once every few years. But he says this in his book, The Gospel. The temptation of the devil was and is, don't risk yourself on God. Trust your own instincts. Live from within yourself. You need to take control because you cannot trust God. It feels normal to rest hope on ourselves, and we fear that he will let us down. So we fall back into scurrying about to fill our emptiness with our own resources. True for an anxious person. Totally true for an anxious person. We really believe that our strategies will save us, that our strategies will take all the chaos and bring it into order. And we'll even give up sleep to make sure that it happens. And I want you to think about the irony of that for a moment. We lose sleep to hopefully gain rest. We abandon rest to later on provide rest. It makes no sense. But then again, anxiety is a liar. We rehearse scenarios to problems that don't exist. We manipulate people around us in order to keep the pain away. We exhaust ourselves because our minds are so terrified. And this is what we end up doing. And this is what gets underneath all of it. We attempt to replace God because we want to be sovereign over all details, over all scenarios, over every strategy. We want to be sovereign. We do. And I know what some of you are thinking, especially if you're a nervous person. Luke, that's stupid. I don't want to be sovereign over the universe. I'm sure you don't. But you want to be sovereign over your universe. Yours. Because when we're sovereign and we have control over every detail, it means there's not going to be any problems. If there's no problems, there's no chaos. If there's no chaos, there's no stress. If there's no stress, there's no panic. If there's no panic, there's no anxiety. If there's no anxiety, there's rest. There's rest. We want to be the one that says, peace be still. And we'll do anything it takes to do it. But it's vanity to be God, isn't it? Isn't it vanity to try to be God? And this is why we do it. We're actually created in such a way where we hunger, stretch, reach to build places of peace where there's no anxiety. I mean, we're actually in between two places where anxiety doesn't exist. The garden before the fall and the city that awaits. Those are two places that you'll never find toil. But here we are in this middle place, and we try to create this heaven on earth, but we try to do it without God. How do we do that? We try to be God. We're sovereign. Anxiety is how we think through how to be sovereign ourselves. I mean, just consider Adam and Eve for a moment, how they existed for a portion of time without stress. <laughs> this is, I don't even understand. We would have, if, if you were to try to describe to Adam what panic was, he'd have been like, wait, 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 go back. Okay, so you're like upset, I guess? Yeah, 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 I'm upset because I'm freaked out, I'm scared, scared. Okay, describe scared to me. Like, what does scared look like? Okay, scared is like when you see something that's really freaking you out. Okay, stop, stop, stop. Freaked out, not familiar. Explain that to me. This is a place that anxiety had never been felt. Toil didn't exist. No one had lost any sleep. No fight or flight. Nothing like that. No breathing exercise, panic balls to squeeze, no overworking, no adrenal fatigue. The world had not gone mad yet. And then it did. And then it did. And how quick did we find them hiding in the bushes out of shame and panic? Boy, it didn't take long for anxiety to find itself into the storyline, did it? Right there. But then if you flip all the way to the back of your Bible, you'll catch a glimpse of the future kingdom. We talked a lot about it last week and all of its splendor, where God's people will walk in such a way. This is fascinating to me. We will walk in such a place that everything we see, colors you've never seen before, people you've always wanted to see, you will get to see culture without sin attached to it. Think about that. The arts with no sin attached to it. Music that you've never heard before. Sounds, colors you've never seen before, right? People relating with no sin attached to it. And you will see it all by the light, not of the sun or the moon, but by the glory and the splendor of Christ himself, which radiates all of creation by his own glory. And guess what won't be there? Anxiety, nor toil, nor panic. Nothing to worry about. It's where we're headed. What we long for today is pre-fall in the garden and in a kingdom that has not totally come yet, but we want to build it today and we want to do it without God. And this is why you come apart. This is why you find toil. 
This is why you're stressed out. This is why anxiety is ripping you to pieces. So consider, what is the biggest knot in your life right now that you cannot untie? The cloud that follows you and at times smothers you. You just get reflux even thinking about it, right? You just want it to go away. Others probably don't see it as clearly as you do. You can't see around it, right? That thing, here's the ultimate question you're gonna wanna ask yourself. Do you believe that God sees it? Do you believe that he cares? Or do you think that he's asleep in the boat? Just careless, doesn't, doesn't care at all. Not considerate, not thoughtful. He's aloof. How do you see God? I was reflecting on this this morning. I had my first panic attack when I was 24 years old. It's awfully young to have any kind of an attack, right? And I didn't know what was wrong with me. I knew something was wrong with me, and it scared my wife pretty bad. I was, I've always been kind of a fit guy. I've never had a problem like that, but I felt like something was physically going wrong with me, enough to bring it up. Rush me to the doctor. They ran some scans. The doctor sits down with me and my bride and says, listen, the pain you're feeling is because of anxiety. And I thought, wait, wait, wait. I mean, I got a hard job. I'm a pastor. It's a hard job. Anxiety? I'm like 24. I can go forever. He said, it's destroying you. It's destroying you. So we spoke with my boss, happened to be my pastor in the church that I was serving in. (laughs) And he gave me a book and gave me a couple days off. Days off were somewhat helpful. The book was not. The book was unhelpful because it treated anxiety as something that my problems brought to me. It didn't handle it as something that my heart brought to my problems, right? It treated anxiety as some sort of an affliction that I was always innocent in the picture. People did this to you, the book would say. Your issue, you should get away from those people that stress you out. You should find what the biggest stressors in your life are and kind of just move them aside and find your own little paradise, it would say. Here's the truth. I have a stressful job now. You're not doing it to me. This church doesn't stress it. This church isn't tearing me apart. This city's not doing anything to me. My wife, my family aren't making me anxious. Our financial situation isn't throwing me in a panic. I'm doing that. I'm doing that. I'm bringing it to my problems. The book was also unhelpful because like so much Christian advice, it didn't require any repentance. It didn't say I had, was doing anything wrong. Now, here's the truth about anxiety. It is an affliction that is applied. That's true. So I want you to imagine like a, like a bridge where you see a giant truck drive across it. That bridge is holding up the weight of that truck. That is a load applied. It is a stress applied. We have that. That's a real suffering. It's a real deal. We live in a world that's growing weeds, right? It's coming apart. Chaos rules the picture. People are broken. We're going to have stress applied. That's true. But anxious toil, it keeps us up at night where we can't believe the promises of God. Well, that's a commentary on what we think of God. That's different. That's different. It's a commentary on how we think of God, how we see the gospel, and how we think he values us. Which is why Jesus has taken the route he's taking, I believe, of just starting off by saying, you're valuable. You're valuable. Sinful anxiety is a fracture, and it's a fracture at a gospel level. This is what I mean when I say that. If God does not value us, and if God does not care or consider us, then the gospel can't possibly be true. It's just a fake news item. It doesn't make any sense. I mean, if God doesn't care about you, if God doesn't value you, then why the cross? Why even come at all, right? Not just why Easter and why Good Friday, why Christmas, why even come? It doesn't even make any sense. This is what Martin Luther said. And listen, Martin Luther, just in case you didn't know this, if you've ever read a biography of him, he was, he was fraught with anxiety. I mean, he would have panic attacks that debilitated him. In fact, if you go back and look at some of his records, he wrecked his gut in his sleep. He was a per, just a perpetual insomniac digestion problems. He was always stressed out, right? And this is what he says. He says, to deal effectively with life's daily fears, that's your anxieties, we must first deal with life's ultimate fear, to die without a place 
or godly acceptance. Luther says, my ultimate anxiety is my fear that I will never find peace with God and never be accepted. This is what he's saying. He's saying if you get that you are valuable to God and you really believe it, it puts all of your daily fears or your anxieties, it puts them in context. It puts them in context. Because think about the cross. Christ cries out, it is finished. And that means a lot of things, by the way. It is finished. It's a different sermon, but it, it means that your work, your strenuous work to impress God is finished. The priestly sacrifice system, priests and sacrifice, it's finished, right? His walking this earth, fully God and fully man, that is finished. That chapter of his life is finished. The suffering that he was enduring on the cross to eradicate sin, it's finished. Let me tell you something else that was finished. It does not, it means all of those things, and it also means that your temptation to panic, that your temptation to be afraid that you were not seen and you were not considered, that you were not valuable, that is finished. The fact that he's dying on the cross and the very fact that he's going to vacate the grave later on proves that you're valuable. It proves that you're valuable. The days of you doubting that are finished because the most out-of-control moment in history, when the world was most mad and everything was burning down, was when a king was placed in a tomb. He hadn't vanished yet. Death had not been defeated yet. That's when people were panicked. Anxiety ruled the day back then. And was God out of control? Nope. Nor was he intimidated, nor was God anxiously coming up with a plan B. Right? He wasn't in the tomb. He's sitting on a rainbow at the right hand of God, dragging sadness and decay and death and anxiety behind his defeated foes. That is our God. That is the gospel. And if we know this, we know rest. If we do not know that truth, we will never know rest. Never know rest. So listen, there is room for us to repent for anxious toil. Right? It might sound like this. Lord, I don't believe you care for me. I don't believe that you see me. I don't believe that you care for me or consider me. I just don't believe you. That's my commentary on you, but I repent and I turn because I know that's not true. I know I'm valuable. I see the gospel. Ask for rest. Ask God for rest. Not just rest and stillness, but st stillness and a rest that a vacation can't bring, that sleep can't even bring, like a real soul rest. This is what the psalmist says in Psalm 127. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Rest, peace. Listen, the garden is behind you. The kingdom is in front of you, but you can be at rest today. You can have a stillness today. And when it feels like the world's gone mad and there is nothing you can do about it, you can repent for trying to be a sovereign God yourself. You could turn to the one who is in the boat with you. And listen, I, I know this is gonna sound like an odd application for some of you in the room, it'll probably be a welcome one for others in this room. Some of you are on medications for anxiety. Let me be careful here. There is nothing wrong with taking a medication for anxiety. Sometimes anxiety could be so crippling that it's just God's gift to you. It's a grace just to keep your head above water from choking. Sometimes God's grace comes through a scientific breakthrough that's called Selexa, or Lexapro, or Boostpar, or many of the others, right? If this is you, there's no shame in taking that. But it can't reverse a curse. It can't cure you. It can't be a hero to you. It wasn't made to do that. We already have a hero. And if we just chase after those things, we're just doing what the Gentiles do. We're chasing over the things of the world. I understand you have an affliction and I share it with you. I share it with you. But we can sin in our affliction when we accuse God of being thoughtless and powerless and careless and unloving. So I want you to feel no shame if you're on a medication for that. But take it with your eyes open. 
it's never going to be your cure. You're going to have to rely on the Lord. You're going to need to really believe that he is in the boat with you. You're going to really need to confess Psalm 46 over your life. I'm speaking to you as one who's been on medications in the past, and I know the difference. And I know this isn't spoken about often in a church. I think, you know, with CBD oil and hemp oil growing in popularity, and it won't be long before marijuana is probably legal for us to take here, this will probably be more of a front burner issue in the church, or it ought to be. You're going to see pastors talking about it more and more and more. That's what I would expect to happen. I just know there's a lot of people that walk around and they're on some sort of a medication and they feel horrible and shame-filled for being on it. I'm saying don't. And then I'm going to end with this application. And it's for those of you who do not struggle with anxiety, but you're a passenger in it all. You're connected. You're doing life closely with somebody who really struggles. And this is your pain. You feel like you've said everything before. Like how many times will I have to say the same thing? It's just not connecting. Like they don't get it. I don't know how to help them. I don't know how to fix this. It's wearing me out. Let me just tell you as one who is afflicted by anxiety, lead them to Jesus. Not not that the problem's not a problem. Don't try to get them to reframe how they see the problem. Help them reframe how they're seeing God in that moment. I'm just, I can attest, this works. My soul finds it can take its deepest breath whenever I'm led to see Jesus well. Don't tell me waves aren't filling the boat. (laughs) I see it. Even when it's not there, I see it. Tell me Jesus is right there. Tell me he's with me in the boat. Tell me that he values me. That's how you care for the people around you that are fraught with anxiety. So go ahead and stand with me, and we're going to get out of this this part of the service. And we're going to enter a part of the service where you can respond. We, We have... The communion elements in the back, which is a visual symbol for us that we take part in as a family of churches. And listen, if you are, if you are not from Legacy or maybe you're a guest, you are invited to participate in everything we do as a church. The one thing that we would say there would probably be an edge to that is when it comes to communion, right? If you are not a Christian, we would invite you to receive Christ to take Jesus instead of those elements. Don't even worry about that stuff back there. If you are a Christian, we'd invite you to take that with us as a family meal. Okay? You also have an opportunity to respond just through prayer, through singing, but I hope through confession today for those of you who are anxious. I hope that you would use this as an opportunity to confess that you've been trying to be God, that you don't believe that God really values you, and that you would beg God for rest today that that would be a part of your interaction with the Lord today, all right? So let me pray for you. Lord, we love you so much, and I thank you. Lord, I'm thankful that you don't talk to those who are anxious and and heap shame upon us, that we should just feel embarrassed and shamed that we're anxious. But I read in this passage, you're being tender, And very careful with us, very gentle with us. And we hear you loud and clear as you tell us how valuable we are. That we're valuable. That we're considered. That we're loved. We're thought for. That we have your attention. And you know what we need even more than we know what we need. And all of this is true. Lord, I know and I'm speaking as an afflicted person... I have to repent, and I know others in this room, we repent for trying to be God, trying to control everything in such a way that we don't even need you. And that's just acting like a Gentile. That's acting like somebody who's not covenantally tied to you. So Lord, we repent. We also repent for saying that you're just not good. You're not graceful. But Lord, help us see clearly. Help us see when there's no fire on the horizon. Help us see when waves really are coming in the boat, because I know this life will have stress in it. Help us see that you're there with us, and that the real answer for our stress and our anxiety is not the problem going away. It's just you're right there with us. And God, you're really good at saying, peace be still. You said it to the cosmos. You said it to the waves. Lord, we need you to say it to our heart. Tell our hearts to be still. 
tell our hearts to find rest. Lord, this is something that we can't do. It's just by your hand, by your spirit, that you would take our frenetic hearts full of activity and fears and doubts, and you would give it rest. Lord, we love you so much. We pray for this city. We pray for this city full of anxious people. And all they know is a life of anxiety. All they know is just a a pace of life that's never going to let up. Lord, we ask as a church that you would give us a fluency, just a high gospel application to those who really need to hear peace, be still. Lord, help us introduce our panicked neighbors to the Jesus in this boat. Lord, I pray though for those who are on a medication in here. Lord, that they would be thankful for even for the small things that give them just the air to breathe, but that you would also increase a hunger in them to depend on you. That you would give them a true faith and a true belief and a true trust that you are the one that says, peace, be still. And when the mortars are going off and everything is on fire and when the world has gone mad, you are the one that we want close by. Ultimately, you are the problem solver. For you have fixed our most ultimate of problems and you've given us acceptance, as Luther says. And Father, I pray for those in here who are passengers, long sufferers, with those who are anxious. Even though I know everybody feels anxiety, I know some people are just ripped through by it, and to live with a person like that requires an endurance. And I pray that you would give them grace to endure. Give them grace to endure and give them an ability to reflect on the gospel before them and lead them to see a God who is in the boat. Lead them to see the problem solver is close by. Lord, we love you kind to us. You're gentle with us. You're very benevolent. You're more than we deserve. We thank you. We love you. And we worship you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.